we don't carry it. Don't carry it? You don't carry turtle oil cream? Is it true that you don't carry turtle oil cream? Well, I'm afraid it is, Mrs. Vanderhoff. You see, we feel that the petrolatum in our cream supplies the oleaginous content in the most superior manner possible. But uh, turtle oil must be good. It's the most expensive cream on the market. Well, it's not as expensive as ours. Oh, well, why didn't you say so? Excuse me. Pardon me. What's petrolatum? Vaseline, my dear, plain Vaseline. And oleaginous means oil, the old oil. Welcome to episode 65 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Lucille Ball plays a beauty operator who invents a cold cream in Beauty for the Asking from 1939. Lucy shares something of the character that she plays. You can recognize the woman she would become in the early 1950s when she became a real-life entrepreneur in television. In 1958, as a result of her massively popular show, I Love Lucy, she bought RKO Studio, her former studio where she made Beauty for the Asking, and where she was once known as Queen of the Bee Pictures. After she split from husband Desi Arnaz, she bought out his share of what was formerly RKO, and then Lucy went on to become the first woman television mogul in 1962. RKO Studio had been through a series of owners by the time Beauty for the Asking went into production. The executive offices might as well have been fitted with a revolving door. Pandro Berman, one of the creative producers installed in the 1930s, who had been behind the success of Katherine Hepburn and the Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire pictures, was elevated to head of production in 1938. Pandro and Lucy had a passionate affair, which ended in 1938. He had begged her to marry him, but she declined because he was married with a child. But that's another story. One significant change Pandro Berman made to the schedule was push A and B pictures and ditch the mid-size productions. Berman tended to focus on the A pictures, so Leo Spitz, the mogul of RKO at the time, felt Berman neglected the bees and took over the attention to the bee pictures. Bee pictures had a lower budget and had a much shorter shooting schedule, along with reduced production values. Spitz had had an idea to make a series of exploitation pictures, which essentially meant ripping ideas from the headlines. It was a formula that proved to be highly profitable for Warner Brothers throughout the Depression, but especially in the pre-code era, when gangster pictures about the bootlegging rackets were a big draw at the box office. The first title Leo Spitz developed was Smashing the Rackets. It premiered in 1938. It was a story about a G-man who becomes a a district attorney and busts up the rackets. Spitz had other ideas for pictures like Clip Joint, which was supposed to expose the seedy nightclub trade of bilking customers. Also, striptease looked at the illegal business behind burlesque. Spitz had other ideas for pictures about religious charlatans and scams in the beauty industry. If the idea of exploitation pictures of the 1930s was to show audiences scams and con artists, 
we can see some of this in Beauty for the Asking. The film shows the audience how a brand is born and how advertising manipulates women's insecurities to sell a product. But after all, beauty is science. It's also blather, one theme that is presented in the film. As a B picture though, beauty for the asking could take bigger risks than a more prestigious A picture. They could be a little more subversive because there would be less scrutiny from the censors about those B pictures cranked out by the studio. Loosely based on the life of Helena Rubinstein, who was born Chaja Rubinstein in Poland in 1872, Rubinstein emigrated to Australia where she became a success marketing a skin cream made from lanolin and scented fragrance to disguise the smell. She built an international beauty empire from that one jar of cream, which included a chain of salons and products. She was one of the richest women in the world. Rubenstein's story sheds many details in the Hollywood treatment here, but it retains the key points about a cream with eight times the markup, which women gladly pay for the pleasure of pampering their skin. In this picture, Lucy also shows that she was more than just out for gags. She holds this drama together, playing a character who realizes that a successful career is the real dream instead of an unworthy man. Lucy plays a dame with a good head on her shoulders, who just so happens to know her onions when it comes to the science behind glamour. Lucy's character, Jean Russell, uses her natural ability, along with creativity, determination, a keen eye for publicity, and a rock-solid work ethic to make her name in a highly competitive industry. Jean Russell is not a con artist, and she doesn't run a racket in the same way as a speakeasy or a rum runner. What makes the film so appealing is exactly the integrity Lucy's character has, despite the markup, the fancy packaging, and the advertising copy. Jean Russell works hard to develop the cold cream. After she spends all day on, the feet, on her feet working in some salon, she spends the evening testing new formulas in the flat that she shares with her roommate Gwen Morrison, played by Inez Courtney. Gwen grouses about the stuff, how she thought it was soup in the pot and ladled out a bunch of the goop by mistake. At one point, when Jean is convinced that the cream she has invented is effective, Lucy says, I feel like an alchemist. And in a way she is, because she's turned sheep fat into gold. Jean's cream removes makeup, firms muscles, tightens the skin, works like a built-in facial, and she puts everything into making it a success. Jean has bigger plans than Gwen's idea to schlep, schlep the jars door to door for 50 cents a sale. In Jean's plan, the cream sells for $5 and women line up to get it. To get her plan in motion, Jean contacts a Madison Avenue advertising firm. Initially, she's mistaken for an eager model and draped in fabric for a print ad campaign. Jeffrey Martin, played by Donald Woods, is the hotshot ad man who tells her she needs an investor with $250,000 to get the cream on the market. He's useful as a male executive could be in a woman's picture. He's completely unremarkable, except for where he can point a dame in the right direction or be of service. 
Jeff tells Jean that she needs to design a glamorous package for her cream. She can't just use any old jar. The scene cuts to an artist's loft and a sculptor shows off a clay relief of a classical woman's profile. It's Greek statuary by way of Art Deco, the same kind of thing that we would see in a Mitch Lyson picture, uh, a trademark hit in something like Midnight with Claudette Colbert released in the same year. This design is straight out of Madame Simone's hat shop. The artist tells them to have it cast in iridescent crystal. Jeff then devises a gimmick to lure investors. Based on a campaign where a dozen women receive sample jars hand-delivered by a young African-American boy in a smart uniform with lots of gold braid. The boy carries the facial cream wrapped in sheets of shiny cellophane with a card on top that flatters the society dames as elites and asks them to try the cream and then get in on the ground floor by investing in the potion. In some way, the film anticipates the influencer culture before there was such a thing. One woman, a newlywed, takes the business proposition. She's a rich socialite, pure Park Avenue, Flora Barton Williams, played by Frida Innescourt. She just so happens to be the woman who snatched away Jean's fiance of three years with her $10 million fortune. Flora hands the new company over to her groom so he has a way to occupy his time in a respectful manner. Although there's only a slight difference of six or seven years between Flora and Denny, played by Patrick Knowles, the other rich ladies make it seem like she's on the verge of cradle snatching. The romantic love triangle subplot is not nearly as interesting as the way the film builds Jean's business acumen. I could watch Lucy all day while she paces the stylish salon with her name on the door. Just like with Helena Rubinstein, the, the, the cream in the jar is a doorway to open an exclusive spot for women. Women are the experts, the ones in charge, within the salon space designed for women. Under the new fancy name, Jean Varel, Lucy heads a sanctuary for women where they can gather and talk about their problems, their bodies, and how to care for them. The space is dedicated to their pampering and pleasure. The only men we see are on temporary visitor status. Denny, although an executive, has an office over in the factory, not in the chic salon. And Jeff still works from his Madison Avenue advertising firm office. When the men have ideas, Jean has the final word. She overrides a harebrained scream scheme that Denny suggests for producing a vitamized face cream like some of the other companies have on the market. Jean's the one who can spot the difference between science and mere advertising slogan. Jean tells Denny that the vitamins could never be absorbed in the skin and that they shouldn't be greedy. After all, they can sell the cream for eight times the markup because otherwise women wouldn't buy it, but there are ethical limits to what she will put her name on. In a great scene in the salon, a client whines to a beauty operator that she must have her usual expensive face cream and complains about having a cheaper product applied to her face. Smooth as a bolt of satin, 
Jean glides into the room to soothe the grouchy woman. In the chair under the smock, the woman demands her usual turtle oil cream, as you heard in the opening to this episode. It's the most expensive cream on the market, she, she says emphatically. But Jean responds with confidence that the turtle oil is not as expensive as our cream. The woman lies back in the chair, placated. Jean knows that women want the best, and she tosses in a few magic words to assure the client that she is the expert. The beauty trade pattern includes petrolatum and oleaginous. Once the client is satisfied, the beauty operator steps into the hall with Jean and asks what the words mean. Petrolatum, she tells her, is Vaseline, plain old Vaseline, and oleaginous is the old oil, meaning to grease the customer's ego and expectations. In woman's pictures, there are variations on the theme of how we know when a dame makes good. Sometimes we can tell by the setting, it gets an upgrade. For example, Constance Bennett trades an overcrowded tenement for a gleaming Art Deco Penn Avenue, uh, Park Avenue penthouse in the easiest way from 1931. Or when she wakes up in another picture uh, under a duvet embellished with miniature silk roses to echo the title of the LaCava picture, Bed of Roses. Sometimes we can tell that a heroine has changed her fortunes by a stunning piece of jewelry. As soon as Joan Blondell, playing Queen of the Rackets, Blondie Johnson, appears in a salon with a diamond bracelet, bracelet thick enough to choke a horse, we know she's well out of the relief office, begging for favors and laddered stockings. She's on to bigger and better things. A woman's wardrobe often tells us more than dialogue in a woman's picture. One of Adrian's guiding principles when he was head of MGM's costume department from 1928 to 1941 was to tell the story with wardrobe so filmmakers could show rather than tell. Clothes, after all, speak for women on the big screen. In general, in women's pictures, we know a woman's fortunes by what she wears. We know that Lily Garland, played by Carol Lombard in 20th Century, is a hit on the stage and that she's a star without ever seeing her act. We know it by the lavish wardrobe she has, made of oyster silks and satin, clinging bias-cut gowns and sumptuous fur. We know Joan Crawford's Janie Barlow in Dancing Lady has moved the burlesque striptease into her rear view when she dances with Franco Tone in a gown decorated with a ring of fresh gardenias around her throat. And for Betty Davis and now Voyager, we know that her makeover from drudge to international sophisticate is complete as soon as we see her two-tone pump step foot on the ship's deck. The same principle applies to Lucy's enterprising Jean Russell. On one level, we know she's a success by the Jean Varel Salon and the series of magazine ads we see. But we don't really know it until we see Jean Russell outside the plain black jersey frock that she wears to run the salon. The moment we see her dress for a society party, 
thrown by her society backer, Flora. We know that Jeans is a business magnet and not just a beauty operator. She wears a metallic evening gown adorned with little diamond clips along the neckline, and then she tops it with a mink coat, and then we know that Jean has really made it. What makes beauty for the asking required viewing an essential woman's picture is the way it trades the usual sexual competition between women. Even though she lost Denny to Flora, Jean does her best to help Flora keep him with a makeover that largely consists of diet and exercise. Jean instructs Flora to give her stomach a rest and exercise her willpower instead. At one point, they quibble over an olive, which shows how serious the regimen is and how committed Jean is to making Flora's marriage a success. The benefits, aside from weight loss for Florida, for Flora, are clear eyes and skin and a glow and the confidence to be indifferent when her husband return home, returns home from a business trip. Just think what it would have been like if Mary Haynes and Crystal Allen decided to be friends and showed Stephen Haynes the door, or if Myrna Loy and Rosalind Russell told Walter Pigeon to take a hike in man-proof. This is the radical ending we always want to see and so rarely get. For once, two smart and beautiful dames realize that they are too good for a mug. Denny is only good for filling out a suit, a society gigolo. They leave Denny to the likes of caddy Eve Harrington. Yes, you heard that correctly, Eve Harrington, a society dame on the prowl, played by the fabulous Leona Maracle. Leona Maracle usually plays the rival, the man trap, in pictures like Woman Chases Man, where she intends to cuckold Joel McRae. Anyway, she's a sister in the category to women like Claire Dodd and Gail Patrick, and she's aces. In Beauty for the Asking, Lucille Ball shares the same quality as two of her role models, Carol Lombard and Irene Dunn. All three women know how to play dames who absorb the slings and arrows from men but never indulge in self-pity. They hold their chin up and find a way to go on. There's a scene in the picture that anticipates the hijinks Lucy would later have on the small screen with her sidekick, Ethel. In the salon, her best friend, Gwen, shows a new piece of machinery to her. It's meant to be one of those reducing machines a box that's lined inside with massage rollers to work off the fat. Gwen steps inside to demonstrate how it works, but something goes haywire. The rollers steam into overdrive and tear off Gwen's frock. She escapes when the lights go out and she starkers until she slips into a robe. Jean and Gwen share a laugh. Before the scene ends, Gwen shoots the machine a dirty look. It seems like a wasted opportunity. Patsy Kelly would have gotten a big laugh here. She would have shot the machine a naughty smile or a leer. That machine is one gigantic vibrator. In her memoir, Lucy notes that she was known as Queen of the Bee Pictures around RKO Studio. 
She doesn't mention this picture in her memoir, but one story from her childhood resonates in the context of Beauty for the Asking. Lucy's mother, Day Day, struggled to raise two children when her husband died in an accident. Fortunately, she had help from her family. Day Day's sister, Lola, often looked after Lucy. Lola was in charge of the best beauty salon in Jamestown, New York. As she grew up, Lucy spent hours in the salon, listening to women talk and watching the rituals of comb and set, a facial, color, manicure. When she was an eager 12-year-old, Lucy invited girls into the shop to give them treatments. Girls left Lola's salon with burns from the hot comb, frizzed hair from a perm gone wrong, or their hair hacked into an uneven shingle. Lucy's real-life escapades led to a string of complaints, and ultimately, her aunt's salon went under. In time, her aunt left the beauty trade and became a nurse. The experience, though, instilled in Lucy a lifelong pleasure through beauty treatments and time in the salon. One of the things she did after the success of her phenomenal hit TV show was to install a salon in her home with all the equipment where she grew skilled giving manicures and hairstyles for friends. Lucille Ball arrived in Hollywood in 1933 on a contract with Sam Goldwyn Studio for $125 a week for six weeks. She was one of 12 models hired to play beauties for auction in the Eddie Cantor picture, Roman Scandals. In her memoir, Lucy recalls that when she stepped off the train in Pasadena, she had her hair styled like Joan Bennett and she wore a black silk dress with a little white collar, something that might've been worn by Constance Bennett. The dress was something she picked up when she worked as a mannequin in Hattie Carnegie's exclusive boutique in New York City. The black silk number was five years old, but Lucy still felt like a queen in it. The lessons that she learned about style, which dictated somber colors in black, gray, and neutral tones from Hattie's shop, stayed with her until years later when she received a bold makeover in bright color once she took up with Desi Arnaz. The 12 models hired for the Sam Goldwyn picture reported to the studio every day. One morning after they were made up, they wore bathing suits and stood in single file to meet the star Eddie Cantor. As evidence of her early genius for comedy, Lucy recalled something she had seen Dorothy Gish do at the racetrack one time, back when Lucy went by the name Diane Belmont because she thought it sounded like the right name for a model. Lucy remembered the time when she watched Dorothy Gish, bored, tear off bits of a racetrack's red program and then stick the pieces to her face like little measles. So instead of standing there for inspection, half naked like a side of beef, Lucy took some red crepe paper that she found in the studio that morning she tore off pieces and applied them to her face, her chest, and her arms. When Cantor stood in front of her, he took one look and burst out laughing and called Lucy a riot. 
he remembered that she would jettison glamour for comedy. As one of the Roman slave girls at auction, Lucy stood under blazing hot lights all day. Even though she was well used to standing all day as a mannequin for Hattie Carnegie, she was bothered by the hot lights that dried everyone's eyes to dust. The 12 models went to bed each night with a poultice made from raw potatoes over their eyes. Lucy planned to last in Hollywood. She didn't want to rest on, set on the salary she could draw as a showgirl or a clothes horse. Above all, she wanted to learn how to work as an actress. When she wound up in RKO, one producer, Pandro Berman, declared that she didn't have what it takes. But someone intervened on Lucy's behalf, Leela Rogers, who was not only Ginger's mother, but she also ran a theater group in the studio that served many contract hopefuls as a dramatic school. One day, Leela approached Lucy and asked her what she would give to be a star in two years' time. Would she give her every breath until then? Would she sacrifice dating, a social life, and work hard? Would she ever? Lucy observed every facet of production closely. While playing an extra on the set of Roberta, for example, she watched Irene Dunn closely. She studied hard in the theater group that Leela directed. Looking back, Lucy's major complaint was not about the long hours or the trials of film production. What hurt the most was when the studio shaved off her eyebrows to match the trend at the time for Jean Harlow. In her memoir, Lucy wrote, God forbid that I should ever find myself on a desert island without an eyebrow pencil. She noted that an eyebrow pencil was the first thing she reached for every morning. Among the stars, Lucy was a standout for the long professional and personal relationship she had with designer Edward Stevenson. In 1935, Stevenson took over for Bernard Newman as head designer for RKO. Stevenson dressed Lucy for 14 pictures she made while under contract, including Beauty for the Asking. Speaking about his career as head designer, Stevenson told his friend, fellow designer and Hollywood historian, David Chirichetti, I always tried to design clothes that supported the script and didn't detract from it. Of their days together in the studio, Lucille Ball noted of Edward Stevenson, he didn't try to please everybody. He read the script and he understood the character I was playing and he stuck to his guns when somebody wanted to change it. I made those B pictures so fast, we were usually working on two or three wardrobes at once. Poor as RKO was in most respects, they always made clothes for me rather than buy them. Lucy was steadfast in her friendships in Hollywood and not just when people were on top. At one point, Stevenson had been arrested for lewd conduct, a risk many men faced who struggled with being gay in a repressive society. Stevenson grew depressed from the scandal and went into hiding. Lucy wanted him to replace the, the designer she had on her hit TV show. And so she tracked him down in Idaho from his family. She hired Stevenson to design for I Love Lucy. 
Lucy's loyalty was undiminished when other stars would have passed on the chance of blowback from a sex scandal. Stevenson, in his part, returned her loyalty. He designed for her shows I Love Lucy, The Lucy Show, and Here's Lucy. From 1960 on, he designed exclusively for Lucille Ball. Edward Stevenson was so loyal, in fact, that he had a heart attack and died in 1968 while he was on the phone with Desilu's studio. He had been waiting on hold to get Lucy's approval for a fabric purchase when his heart stopped. George Raft used to hand out fivers like they were after dinner mitts. He tipped everyone as though he really were in the mob. He was known as the softest touch in Hollywood. Anyone with a hard luck story or had been connected to his dance circuit origins in New York City, they were guaranteed a handout. For those in his inner circle, George Raft was better than Santa Claus. Lucy often dated Mac Gray, right-hand man to George Raft, and they doubled with George and his society dame, Virginia Pine. When Lucy was suddenly in between contracts and her mother was finally moving out to Hollywood from Jamestown, she was in a jam. Raft asked if he could help. Lucy told him that she was so embarrassed to be broke when her mother arrived. Raft handed her a century note and then loaned her his limo and driver so that she could meet Day-Day in style and take her out to one of the hot spots. Lucy never forgot his generosity. She repaid him and thanked him over the years. Later, Lucy went out on a limb for George when he was in trouble with the IRS. She was one of a few big name performers who petitioned to keep George out of the slammer. While it's notable that Lucy climbed from mannequin to owning the former Arcade studio and making a host of landmark television programs, it's also important to recognize that Lucille Ball was guided by women and promoted other women's careers. In Lucy's memoir, she recalls wrestling with the big decision about signing that contract for her television show. It was a big risk at the time. Television was seen as a step down if you were in pictures. It meant that she and Desi would also have to give up their work in radio. Then one night, Carol Lombard visited her in a dream. The queen of screwball wore a slinky bias cut gown and waved a black cigarette holder. Carol told Lucy, go on kid, give it a whirl. Lucy followed Carol's advice and never looked back. Anne Miller wrote in her memoir that Lucy discovered her when she was 13 years old and dancing in nightclubs. Anne had a forged birth certificate so that she could work to support her mother who was hearing impaired. Lucy was always drawn to girls who were raised by single mothers and who struggled for success. That's probably why she developed such a close friendship with Ginger Rogers. Lucy expressed a debt she could never repay to Leela Rogers, who backed her throughout her early years in RKO. No one ever gave her as much help as Leela, she wrote. Lucy had no way to repay Leela, but when she bought the RKO studio, the little theater was still there. 
Lucy resurrected the dramatic school so she could pass down what she had learned learnt to up-and-coming actors. And she did it when she was the most popular face in entertainment. The following books helped me to write the episode and are highly recommended. Love Lucy by Lucille Ball. Lucille, The Life of Lucille Ball by Kathleen Brady. RKO Pictures, A Titan is Born by Richard B. Jewell. Creating the Illusion, A Fashionable History of Hollywood Costume Designers by Donald L. Scoggins and Jay Jorgensen. Hollywood Costume Design by David Chiarichetti. Miller's High Life by Ann Miller. George Raft by Louis Yablonski. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode when Matt Harris joins me for a special lockdown episode on Joan Crawford in Queen Bee from 1955. Thanks very much.